Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. All right, a great day for talk radio. Not such a great day for two individuals who uh, edit and publish the Your Ward News, which is a free circular. They hand out they've been found guilty of uh, willful promotion of hatred. They've got their sentencing hearing April 26th and face a maximum of six months in custody and $5,000 fines for each of two counts of willfully inciting hatred against an identifiable group, women and Jews. And uh, the two individuals are James Sears, and uh, he's 55, Leroy St. Germain, who's 77. Interesting case study uh, because a lot of people feel, and in fact, Sears was saying that uh, the hate law is arbitrary and... uh, as well, of course, uh, it has to do with the difficulty of prosecuting these cases because the bar seems, as the Crown said themselves, extremely high when it comes to the level of intent. Let's get Joseph Newberger in here, Global News Radio's law expert with Newberger and Partners. Joseph, good afternoon. John, how are you? Very good. I mean, uh, what do you make of this case? I mean, first, let's start with these two individuals who uh, claim that the hate law is arbitrary, and the judge came down rather emphatically. He said, uh, man, if any case uh, really spoke to incitement of hatred against identifiable groups, this was it. Yeah, I mean, the evidence, I think, was fairly overwhelming. Um, This publication was fairly notorious and had been, um, you know, espousing very anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, very direct um, hate speech against women. And I I think this was a a fairly overwhelming case. Even though the threshold's fairly high, the the rhetoric which was used by these two defendants was so so significant that it would have been very hard, I think, for a judge to acquit them. Well, all right. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, amongst the things that were said, uh, Holocaust denial, I mean, uh, right. th- now that fall into the realm of uh, willful promotion of hatred? I can't recall. I mean, Kazundal was up no. on that rap years ago. Right. No. I mean, if, if, you're just this, if you're just stating a position about something historical, so it's a, you know, a fact you're disputing, and we know that other people do that down south, I mean, uh, that's not going to be hate speech. But when it rises to a level which promotes hatred of individuals and can actually incite violence that's where you cross the line into criminality and the the language which was used in the demonization of women and jewish people was so significant in these publications that it really did cross the line into hate speech that could incite violence against an identifiable group so just merely stating you know or denying certain facts is one thing but when you promote language about individuals that really is very, very bad, uh, you really are crossing the line at that point. It was interesting that uh, women as an identifiable group, uh, that's almost unprecedented, isn't it, that they've been uh, cited as the case against whom willful promotion of hatred is uh, being planted? Yeah, I think, you know, as I was reading this material, it may be the first or one of the very first cases in this regard, but, you know, um, again, this was something that promoted legalizing rape, and that is, 
you know, beyond bad and is a direct risk to women in the community. And so that's a pretty clear, again, you know, uh, example of hatred against an identifiable group. And again, my, you know, I think Justice Bluen got it right in this case. Yeah. And uh, they demonize feminists as dangerous people, quote unquote. Called, yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I could go on, but it's odious stuff and on the face of it anyway. But insofar as that's concerned, I mean, is there a risk that, you know, when this guy sears, I, I guess he's not a sympathetic figure, certainly, but when he calls hate law arbitrary, is there a danger that it could be perceived as such? I mean, you've got people now in the States, for example, suggesting that uh, the MAGA hats, well, Alyssa Milano tweeting the other day that it's just the new replacement for the KKK hood. Uh, you know, if we're on that slippery slope, is there ever a risk we would fall into that kind of subjectivity? I don't think so. I mean, I think we're pretty measured in our prosecutions here. We're pretty good in protection of, of the right to free speech. Um, but we also have to be very careful because we've entered a time now where with social media and with the recklessness with facts and statements, we are in an era now where people are going to an extreme and it can cause great harm to individuals, whether they are women, Jewish people, uh, you know, African Canadians, etc. We have to be very careful to protect against speech that goes beyond the line and can really incite hatred. And we've seen you know, around the world, uh, including the United States and in Europe, where, you know, people are standing up and are saying things and doing things which are quite dangerous. So I think we need to bring ourselves back to some level of civility, uh, which seems to have been lost over the last couple of years. Well, you know, citing that case in uh, Kentucky where those kids on that school trip last Friday uh, and the whole blowback off what was interpreted in a, a series of screen grabs or video clips and then in the broader context, it kind of uh, shifted the narrative and uh, tended to exculpate the kids in a lot of people's minds, but the damage had been done insofar as on social media. There were even people from credible news organizations suggesting that these kids deserved a punch in the face. They're 15 Hmm. years of age. Now, I wonder, uh, does that constitute slander or maybe a certain form of incitement? Well, you know, without knowing the exact particulars, but if there are public statements on social media, you know, promoting violence against those young persons, again, that's crossing the line because you are now inciting a criminal offense. That is not something that we should allow on social media or in any written format whatsoever. Again, it's one thing to state an opinion that you think the, the conduct is abhorrent and wrong. It's another to suggest that there should be violence occasioned upon another person, regardless of what they've done. That's, again, crossing the line, and it's inciting some type of violence against individuals, and we've got to be very careful about that. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out, because, I mean, I'm sure there are lawyers who are lining up to uh, take up the case and cause of these young people and maybe go after some of these celebrity tweeters and even people, as I said, from uh, so-called reputable news organizations. Joseph Newberger is on the line, Global News Radio Law Expert with Newberger and Partners. I want to shift here because I think this is a fascinating case study out of Chilliwack, uh, where back in, uh, I guess it was 2017, early April, a man was caught with 27,500 fentanyl pills in his van after a traffic stop where uh, the police officer... A dog handler had his dog uh, sniffing around the car, or it was a van, rather, and uh, the dog identified that there might be some illicit drugs there, uh, and when the dog is supposed to sit upon uh, discovery of such, he's supposed to fully sit, but there was a curb blocking him from sitting. Uh, So this has now become the nub of a charter case, for crying out loud. Explain this one to me. Uh, it's going to be a little hard for me to do that. Uh, you know, it, it's a bit of an odd set of facts. 
You know, we have dogs who are well-trained to sniff out drugs and, uh, and other things in, in our society. Um, I think what the judge was referring to was there was ambiguity as to what the dog was signaling. And then there may be issues with respect to the training and the reliability of using a dog in, in these circumstances in order to justify the detention. Also in that case, it's sort of only reported towards the end, this individual was detained for uh, quite a period of time and not provided with any rights to counsel as well. So it's it's not just one breach of a charter violation or one breach of a charter right, it's, it's actually two. But I suspect this will be appealed and you know what will be relevant is the science behind the dog's training and whether the dog could sit or not if the dog adequately signaled the handler, who's very familiar with the dog, that this was, in fact, an identification of uh, drugs in the vehicle, that would give reasonable ground. So I think we're going to see this on appeal and, and see how that plays out. I just found it fascinating because uh, there was a curb that was a, an impediment to the dog sitting fully, and so the interpretation was uh, that this was somehow, I guess, ambiguous yeah. as to whether the dog had actually identified drugs yeah. yeah. So uh, that was a fascinating aspect to me. Uh, I guess I'm just silly that way. As to the no, no, it, it is actually kind of interesting, and it's something we. I think it's going to be interesting to watch the court of appeal because I agree with you. I think it's a, you know if the dog can't sit because of a curb there. You know we're relying on a handler who knows the dog quite well. Maybe that is sufficient. I don't know. We'll have to see what the Court of Appeal will say. Finally, I've got to ask. I mean, uh, this is sort of out of your purview. I guess it has to do with civil liability. Uh, right. One of these great toboggan runs in the city has been closed uh, due to what they say is uh, shifting uh or terrain that's developed severe ridges and drops that create high risk of injury. This is Riverdale Park East, uh, just on the west uh, slope of Broadview Avenue there. And uh, when it comes to that, is this usually a result of liability issues and the city doesn't have to want to face any uh, possible personal injury suits and so on and so forth? Is that what's going on here? You know, from what you're telling me, absolutely. And I think it's a public safety issue as well. So if there is an area because there's been some movement with respect to the topography that could pose a risk to somebody using it, I would expect our city to act to close it down because, A, they are liable because they're the one who's responsible for the maintenance and safety of these locations, which are which they know is used by people for tobogganing and other related sport activities. And it's, and, and it's a duty of care as well because the public relies on the city in this regard. And if it's a child or an adult going down that hill and because there's some risk that might not have been identified but should have been identified by the city, uh, there can be significant liability, but it's also best to try and avoid any harm to an innocent individual. And so is society better served for this, this development that we've come to? I mean, I guess we can all recall in our day where, uh, you know, uh, there would be no such warnings and yeah. we go headlong down the, or, you know, jumping off rock ledges into a, a pool in a quarry and not knowing what was at the bottom necessarily. We swam at our own risk. We entered all of these uh, toboggan runs at our own risk. Is that, are we better served now for having these kinds of caveats being issued by the city? Yeah, you know, I think we are. I mean, you know, if you look back, seatbelts in cars and what, you know, when I was a kid, nobody seemed to care if I had a seatbelt, you know. I think we've come far, and I think it's good for us to try and, uh, as a community, protect individuals from undue harm. Um, and, you know, in a case like this, I think it's appropriate. I mean, you know, there comes a point where it's too paternalistic. But for something like this, if there is a shift into topography, which can cause a risk to a child or an adult using it, Better to err on the side of caution than otherwise, because, 
we don't need somebody getting a concussion or, God forbid, being paralyzed as a result of this. I hear you. All right. Uh, Joe, it's always great to get your insights. Thanks so much for your time. You have a good afternoon. Have a great show, John. Take care. Thank you. Joseph Newberger, Global News uh, Radio's law expert from Newberger and Partners. I want to pursue that here with a few fast calls. I mean, would you rather uh, have it sort of enter at your own risk? You do it at your own risk? Should have asked Joe, does that actually absolve the city if it comes down to a case of somebody getting injured or hurt? And just how severe is the terrain shift? So I'm not sure. Uh, The bubble wrap generation, certainly, uh, this is what we hear, is the product of all of these things, you know, as we've shifted our uh, perspective on needing to do preemptive things, keeping people off hills, you know, because they're slippery and slidey and all the... Back in the day, we get back to that (laughs) old saying, back in the day, we ran the risk. We didn't care. We took our chances. Yeah, we got hurt, you know, maybe busted a limb, that kind of thing. Uh, We never thought for a minute of suing. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.